evening. The <coughs> Dharma teachings are in the way of uh, uh, questions which you have uh, kindly written during the course of the day. And as uh, some of you can see sitting here, there's quite a, a mountain of uh, questions. So um, two or three points I would like to make, be, make before beginning. Uh, firstly, the uh, obvious one. I picked out all the easy ones to answer. <laughs> the, uh, the second one is that please have no expectation that your question and my answer will have any relationship. <laughs> if it does, regard it as a miracle. And... Um, uh, uh, thirdly, there's a, sometimes with the questions and some excellent uh, questions, uh, they um, have taken the uh, liberty of a little censorship from time to time, meaning I might shorten the question a little bit with the endeavour to capture the letter and the spirit of it as much as, uh, much as possible. So I'll... Um, just uh, uh, kick off with uh, these uh, questions. <laughs> Mountain to hold here. Can one believe in God and follow the Dharma? And the uh, uh, answer to that is simply yes. Completely unproblematic. What might be necessary for those who have appreciation for the word uh, God is to give care and attention to what the inner responses are when we use or speak this word. And sometimes it does evoke within some of us, but not uh, all, a uh, response which whispers, which intimates of that which is greater than oneself. And Dharma teachings are a pointer, are a way without any clinging or holding on the way, like the raft going across the, the river, towards that which cannot be measured, which is immeasurable. If for some, the language of G-O-D works well for oneself, if the language of Allah all works for oneself. If the language of Brahman, meaning the immeasurable, works for one, please do respond to it. There are others who are sitting here for whom there is no connection at all with the word. There is uh, no application nor use of it in any way whatsoever. And the associations with it can be in a certain construct, the personal God who loves us. And for some, there'll be no sense of connection with that interpretation. And therefore, the Dharma language is absolutely accessible to those who have appreciation, love of G-O-D. And equally important for those for whom the word has no meaning, no relevance, and no application uh, in, in life. We have to see through our own inner life, our own intuitions, uh, what is healthy and works for us to wake us up. That is first and last priority. How do you see bowing to the Buddha? Buddha statue, and to teachers and students. I noticed that you and Sylvia don't seem to do it. Um, I wouldn't be so presumptuous to uh, uh, speak on behalf of Sylvia, um, but what I can say uh, uh, for myself is that um, every day, and more frequently uh, on retreats and in other circumstances, if I may say, 
I am bowing to the Buddha. Every day, I am bowing to the students. Each time, I have the opportunity and the immense privilege of giving Dharma teachings. And when they touch us, when there's something insightful or inspirational or beneficial uh, for us, in the very moment it touches the one who listens, at that moment I've just been bowing to the Buddha. Each time um, there is a sharing, each time there is a listening uh, taking place, then in that moment, again, a bowing to the Buddha. Uh, each time I'm uh, sitting in silence and stillness and being present is a bowing to the Buddha. Some will feel quite uh, comfortable and I also feel quite easy about uh, the Buddha statues of uh, the Buddha and Kuan Yin, the, uh, the goddess of compassion. And, and certainly in various places, particularly when teaching in India or going to Thailand in the monasteries, naturally enough, the form asks of us to, to physically bow there. And of course I engage in that without any resistance uh, uh, whatsoever. So this is my form of uh, bowing. And my uh, home has got lots of little Buddha images. They're all over the place. Uh, there. Don't tell anybody. Uh, <laughs> can you make a shift happen? For example, I was addicted to a painful, unhealthy pattern for 25 years. Tried and practiced fervently to stop, to no avail. As if in a flash, seemed suddenly, on the first day of this retreat, my mind, quote-unquote, shifted completely, and I could no longer uh, do the habit that had ruled my life. Why couldn't I have done these things, uh, made, made them to happen uh, before? I think the question is a very important question. What, how is it that we can't make a shift happen? We can say to ourselves, I want to make a shift. The eye arises. And I'll uh, make a shift. I want to be like this. Uh, from now on, I should be like this. And there is no indication whatsoever that the inner life will respond to it. And we can make all sorts of promises with ourselves and resolutions with our uh, self. And quite often, the inner life simply takes no notice and um, when, on the occasions that, that, that it does, bow down before your mind. When it sits up and takes notice of what we direct to it, the, the Buddha would appreciate this far more than bowing down to a statue. And therefore, there are conditions which contribute to that. It's hard to know all the conditions which are operating. One of them, second link in the Eightfold Path, is the condition of intention. It is an important condition. But it, and it accompanies interest and love and exploration and reflection and uh, investigation and sharing and sharing our experiences with others and silence and meditation. And in the myriad no and nature and in the myriad number of conditions, sometimes that shift as one person said, waited a quarter of a century, 25 years for that shift to take place. And sometimes that shift just comes. And what else can we be but extraordinarily grateful? And in such times, it is valuable and it is important just to rest with that, just to be with that, just to feel at home with that, because something beautiful has happened within. And these Dharma halls are great places on this planet for shifts to take place. The, these retreats are about shifts. Sometimes they're very significant in a very short period of time, as we just uh, heard. And sometimes they're gradual. And there's been a long debate in the tradition about gradual and sudden. We don't mind either. <laughs> because the alternative is not worth considering. <laughs> Self-proclaimed, quote-unquote, fully enlightened beings with serious ethical lapses. Are they, quote-unquote, fully enlightened? Can one be and have ethical issues? Uh, with regard to 
the notion, which one has to tread carefully here, self-proclaimed, fully enlightened beings, I'm not sure how it is, would be for you, but having spent, if I may say, my entire life and, and of course, my adult life with the Dharma there and have had travelled and listened to many teachers, attended, uh, worked with many teachers, attended many satsangs and Advaita teachers and of course, annual visit to uh, India every year since 1974, etc., etc., etc. That we do listen to various uh, voices. And sometimes, some teachers, as a person writes, will regard themselves as self-proclaimed. One has to tread rather carefully with that of the I and enlightenment, putting those two together. Nothing inherently wrong with it, but one has to tread very carefully because the eye can build up itself up in terms of conceit, superiority, and enter into the dualism, I know you don't know. Then the person asked appropriately, with serious ethical lapses. Depends here what is meant by serious. And if we take on uh, precepts for a moment here, serious ethical lapses, would be intentionally to kill somebody. It would be to, uh, to rob and deprive people. It would be to engage in rape and sexual assault. It would be lying to get somebody in prison or to be trapped in alcohol and drugs and all the destructiveness of that and the culture that goes uh, with it. Sometimes we, there are experiences of two which are not in those uh, areas which is foolishness or naivety or irresponsibility or um, uh, lack of awareness or wisdom in any, in any of these uh, areas. And therefore, can there be an authentic uh, liberation, as the Buddha has pointed out, and yet sometimes for that man, for that woman, because of foolishness, whatever, in a certain time or place or situation with regard to any of the pre- precepts. Does that mean the person doesn't know what liberation is? I think a person can know very well and deeply. There is a knowing of what liberation is, and at times, across the, the sun of that liberation, some clouds may go. And as the Buddha pointed out, with regard to the noble ones and this, one of the key features of uh, a deepened awareness in this uh, area is that there is the wish to resolve what hasn't been resolved. There is the wish to attend to what hasn't been attended to or neglected. So it's rather important for us, both inwardly and outwardly, to see if there's something serious in the way that I earlier described, this would indicate there's something pathological, something seriously wrong, Uh, with the uh, human being that needs a great deal of work and inner attention. And there are other areas which uh, do not fall into that category, but equally certainly deserve our attention and our exploration. And it it is important to distinguish the difference here, both for ourselves and with with each other. We are human uh, after all. Please talk about the jhanas and the relationship to um, uh, samadhi, jhana, etc. In the uh, tradition, there is great love and great respect for two aspects and features of meditation. One is called jhana, and this is deep inner absorptions which generate and bring about deep happiness, natural happiness, natural joy, a genuine inner peace, and uh, an ongoing and well-established equanimity. And there are practices that falls under the umbrella concept of samatha, means calmness practices, compassion and appreciative joy and metta, loving kindness, all in the field of samatha. 
And these deep meditations are very healing, profoundly nourishing. And one of the important aspects of them, as the Buddha pointed out, is that the, that the benefit amongst many is that there's less tendency towards grasping and grabbing hold of the five hindrances. Desire and anger and boredom and agitation, anxiety, fears and doubts and, and so forth. And it's a very important area for exploration, this area. There, and there are a number of uh, uh, teachers who are genuinely and importantly deeply interested in the practice of samatha, the deep jhanas, these deep absorptions. And while talking to you, just seeing Shaila over there, one of the yogis by the, the, the window uh, there, she won't mind me saying, she has... Uh, recently written um, a, a manuscript which I have in my room and have been reading here and uh, at, ho- at home in England which is very specifically on these deep absorption experiences how to work with them and the benefit uh, of them and amongst the, uh, uh, the Dharma teachers nobody is better qualified than Shaila she won't mind me saying this she might roast me later on though and uh, she has spent altogether some seven years in retreats, not doing retreats over seven years, seven years in retreats, including uh, a year at the Forest Refuge Centre uh, there. And uh, very hopefully, there's an advertisement here, that this book will be published. And uh, the advertisement says, if you know any publishers, you know any agents, call me Shaila. But it's a truly, it's the best book on these practices that I've seen. That's manuscript. It's five stuff. All right. <laughs> Who is the beautiful blonde woman you frequent, frequently walk around with? There is no need to uh, ask me. Please ask the beautiful blonde woman. She knows who she is. (laughs) There. From um, um, time uh, time to time, I've, um, instead of going up the slope to the upper, I've gone down the slope to the lower section and occasionally I have left this uh, lovely blonde lady uh, a little uh, three-worded note there. Her name is uh, uh, Sonia and in Russian it means wisdom. So I am now for the first time in my life living with wisdom. And my beloved friends have have been telling me, Christopher, we've been waiting a long time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) That's a good question. Are or is wanting security and insecurity the same thing? Immediate response, yes, yes, yes. Is wanting of security and insecurity the same thing? Yes, yes, yes. And, of course, in many, many different ways, we uh, have an interest in security. Of course we do. But we're terribly vulnerable and terribly easy to be manipulated around it. And it requires from us an exploration which goes deeper than the ordinary and the everyday. And what I mean by that is we have a misplaced direction for security. We tend to put our wish for security, which is a natural human wish, into that which is insecure. 
and that which is insecure could be anything which is formed together. It's not to say that you and I don't engage with the world. It's not to say that you and I don't engage with work, that we don't embark on a relationship, that we don't enter into the fields of consideration about anything and everything. But we do need to be acutely aware that that which we give our attention to in the, in the field that we live in, and that also includes all of our identities, including our national identity, none of it is secure. It can't possibly be, because it's determined and shaped by the conditions that arise. It's, there is a wish for security. It is normal. It is natural. But it's distorted because it's going in the wrong direction. And that is to be explored and understood with us. And then to ask ourselves, is there an authentic security? One of the first steps in that authentic security is, though it's often misunderstood, I feel, the taking of the triple gem, as we did at the beginning. It's a way of taking the emphasis off the field that we get caught in, fields, Budang Saranangachami, Damang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami. It's a vehicle toward a security which can be well established with us. And to give you a very small example, and I'll respond a little bit further, and it really struck me how important sometimes, even though Christopher's no keen lover of chanting, etc. Bhajans are fabulous. And one uh, woman on the retreat told me a year or two ago that she was in absolute desperate state. She said she was so desperate she was really suicidal. Everything in her life which she had built up and put together was just falling apart. The marriage fell apart, the job fell apart, she lost her home, she had no money, she had debts, she felt nobody she could turn to, etc. And she was in a terribly, terribly depressed, unhappy condition and felt really suicidal. She just couldn't go on. And suddenly she said she just found herself chanting. Budang Saranangachami, Damang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami. And she just kept again and again and again, hour after hour after hour. And she said the power of doing that really just the vibration of it, the language of it, the tone of it, the, the desperation that was going on for her just pulled her through this uh, suicidal mood that she, that she was in and she was able to come out of it after hours. Sometimes in life we, we move from desperate insecurity like that and we need the love of each other, the practices of each other, the support of e e each other and that moves us, it moves the consciousness to a place of more steadiness, greater sense of security in the moment, in the here and now. And with that stabilizing so vital, there's an opportunity for that which is unshakable. And that which is unshakable is truly secure. And this Dharma teachings point to again and again. What percentage of Muslims are peaceful and what percentage are militant terrorists? Where can I find a balanced view of this, website or whatever? I listen to the alternative radio and TV, but I know, as you said, our press is not free. Thank you. It's rather, in the time that we live in, it's a rather uh, um, important question. And it's an important question because we live in, speaking in the generalities for a moment, we live in the time of the American Empire. It's an American Empire which has at its disposal two areas. Massive uh, uh, conventional weapons of uh, uh, mass destruction which are being used and the tendency to, of uh, the media 
There are important exceptions to this, and I'm aware of them, obviously. To keep, as it were, putting our images to us, which impact upon us, and it's reflected in the question, which inhibit us and stop us from actually understanding the lives of other people. That's sometimes the very word Muslim is already associated with violence. The word Arab is associated with violence. That the Middle East is associated uh, uh, with it. And we shouldn't underestimate the influential, perhaps controlling power uh, over us. And we have to dig um, much deeper than that. And the same, of course, can go in reverse towards Americans, towards English who support the Americans. And it's going to take a lot of inner digging and a lot of work and a great deal of meta and every application that we can that nothing comes out of heart, mind or speech which in any way dehumanizes another human being or a group of people. Because when we do, we are the problem. When we do, we contribute to more violence. When we do, we continue to tightening the veil around the face of Muslim women. Through our voice, through our insensitivity, through our lack of uh, a connection with the men, women, and men, women, and children. And when I was in Nablus, Shrem, as my Israeli brothers and sisters call it, uh, just some time ago, we had a meeting. It went on till in the night, one o'clock, one thirty. Families of the martyrs, people working in the villages, people from Hamas, people who are. Uh, in the universities with the, with the students. There's one young woman, a couple of years younger than my daughter. And she had a very, very difficult time at the checkpoints. And a soldier said to because she's a very lovely, very beautiful young uh, woman with just the, the, the headscarf and the, the long uh, coat, said to her at the checkpoint, if I, I'm only going to let you through if you give me your telephone number. And he wouldn't let her go through. She arrived there at 7 o'clock in the morning, needing to be at the university by 9.30. It takes two or three hours to go through. He still had her standing there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon until she would give the phone number. And he wouldn't give, she wouldn't give it. He snatched the phone number from her and then phoned his phone. So the number went to his phone. In what country? Israel and Palestine. And she was very afraid. Very, very afraid. And in that, when she got home, she told me. She didn't know what to do. And when she went back, she waited a few days, hoping the soldier would have gone. When she went back after uh, a few days, he was still there on duty. And then he started shouting out her name, because they have to show the pass. And wanting to make a date with her. Can you imagine what it was like for her, with uh, other Palestinians standing around, wondering, was there something going on between them, etc.? These situations of stereotyping and the vulnerability. She stopped going to university. She's too afraid now, along, along with many others, to go to the checkpoints just because of one incident like this. We have to look what's going on in situations where we project young soldier, young guy, etc., projecting onto her, what the impact upon her, etc. We have to ch have a radically different view. Palestinian women, as a small example, are not oppressed. They're not caught up. They have no shops and supermarkets. They can't get themselves lost in clothes and fashion and cosmetics, etc. The, the effect of that, they are some of the most uh, articulate, 
well-informed, clear, conscientious women I have met in my life, you know, Palestinian women, because all the rest has been taken away from them, because they're living in such hardships there. But we don't hear that voice. And as the women have said to me several times, the Palestinian women, we want to make changes in our society. We want to look at the dynamics of family relationship. We want to look at the place of women in our society. Do you think the West, uh, doesn't the West realize this? Don't Americans understand that women, Arab women and Palestinian women, Muslim, want to make changes? But how can we when we're so oppressed? How can we leave our husbands? How can we make changes? We're, we're just trying to survive. Our pressure is a contribution to the absence of the lack of change. And in spite of all that, change comes about. We have to completely get out of these stereotyped images that, that, we, uh, that we have of these people in the world. It's, it's an, an important undertaking. That's a, a good question. If life is a gift, why wouldn't we want to be continue, continually reborn into life on earth? It's a gift, you know, we all, we all like a gift, etc. And this afternoon, Sylvia and I were talking about the joys of the gifts that we'll hope to receive, <laughs> and the staff too. <laughs> yeah. It is a gift in a certain way. Sometimes it doesn't always feel to be. <laughs> Sometimes it feels a little heavy with life and, and difficulty with life. Truly there is the gift of life. But the authentic gift of life is pointing to that, capital T, which made the gift possible. Where does this what does this gift of life emerge from? What does this gift of life return to? What does all these extraordinary arisings which you and I touch upon and experience with our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, feeling, thought? Where is the resting place for all of this? Yes, we appreciate the gift of life. There couldn't be anything worse, surely, than intentionally and deliberately taking somebody else's life away. It's the first precept. It's the first teaching. And may never a word, never a word come even better, may never even a thought come out of our mind that others, whoever they, he, she, they are, deserve to die. As I tell the Palestinians, I don't support one single throwing of a stone at an Israeli soldier. You, not one word of support will you get from me, from me for it. Why do you not call yourself a Buddhist? Please explain in detail. <laughs> Um, two or three uh, re reason, re uh, uh, reasons uh, here. Um, one reason is I wish to be vigilant in the flow of my life about any kind of identity. That's the primary reason. And if I use the word or the statement I am a Buddhist and use it regularly, there is the possibility, perhaps not for others, but for myself, there is the possibility that I begin with that identity to identify with it more. And then it will possibly put me in the position of having to support, defend, justify some aspects of Buddhism, which I feel are totally out to lunch. And it may also make a gap in other areas of life with uh, other religions, which I have great love and appreciation for, with people who have no religion, which I have great love and appreciation for, 
So the language of I am a Buddhist, I do not describe myself of. But of course, naturally enough, people will say um, to me regularly, oh, oh Christopher is a, is a Buddhist teacher. Uh, Christopher writes books from the Buddhist tradition or whatever. And, and I don't go, <laughs> no, it's quite fine for anyone to use a description. I don't use it or very rarely uh, uh, of, 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 my, of myself. That's why I just uh, hold it very lightly, despite all the Buddha images in my house. <laughs> I've read in your writings that you think most of us in the first world are over-medicated. Not over-meditated, by the way. (laughs) Over-medicated. Anesthesia, our frantic minds, I'll come into the wrong word. Um, I've been diagnosed bipolar and have a relative who cured himself uh, by going off his medication. Do you think any of us might need medication for biochemical imbalance? And I say, yes, with an exclamation mark here. And I do think, and Ruby and I were speaking a little bit about this together uh, a couple of evenings ago, that in in the area of, um, some areas of medical science, which I and I'm sure you have plenty of questions about, I do regard as providing a very, very important, being a very, very important resource for some people. And that means that some people do experience what we might refer to as a dis-ease. And this dis-ease manifests itself through the neurology of the brain cells. It reflects and shows itself in the outcome of states of mind, the whole range and variety. And once again, for some people, whether it's in the short term or in the long term, it may be quite necessary and appropriate to come to that steadiness, what I referred to as uh, equanimity, that ability to be stay steady through the active support of such medication. And I think it does provide an important service there. Some people, and plenty that have seen uh, uh, over, the, over the years, having worked with so many people and the mind states, etc., it is in the short term. And in the short term, that may be uh, vital and necessary. And despite all the chemicals that are being used and the impact which they intended to have on the body and some of the side effects which have on organs and other uh, areas as well, human body is remarkably capable of uh, incredible renewal and adjustment. We shouldn't underestimate the power of the biology to come out of incredible use of uh, chemicals uh, on the body uh, uh, and through them. And for some, for years, who are on tablets, for uh, whatever reason they may be, physical or neurological or whatever, I can still have a good life. I'm sometimes concerned about the kind of uh, judgment and labeling that some people, either on themselves or on others, and the labels that go with it of finding fault, blame, or you should be able to get yourself out of this, etc., etc. And we need to be careful and respectful to people who do find medication helpful. Naturally, I prefer everybody was on meditation, but, and some, and some of you here, are on both. All credit to you. All credit to you. Is there a danger that the process of inquiry can may lead to judgment. When does thinking thinking critically cross over into criticism? I found the examination of my thoughts uh, disruptive and it's hard to reconcile 
the intention of being at ease. But that's a good point. It relates to some other questions uh, uh, here. In meditation, there is an important aspect of reflection. What is going on here? What do I need to see and understand? What can emerge from this observation? Is there something more important than just the story? All of that can be of great value. There is often uh, hesitation through the practices and sometimes fear of the fear of sounding judgmental. And what can happen with that, that there comes about correspondingly a hesitant hesitation to be critical. Dharma teachings, for those who have the critical uh, voice, are vital. We don't suppress the critical voice. We keep it alive. We express our critical voice. We mustn't be afraid there. Sometimes, and of course it gets pointed out to me with regularity, there can be some confusion, understandably, between as it's explained to me, intent and content. So some of you, very patiently and gallantly, have been sitting here over the days, and I will express my view. That's what I do. I express the view. And sometimes in the uh, expression of the view, whatever it might be about, sometimes I know it irritates. Of course it does. Of course it does. And I'm not saying for a single moment I'm being skillful. (laughs) But the hard truth is there are people like Christopher in the world. I'm not the only breed around, you know. I'm not a bizarre expression of sentient life. There are plenty of people around with the critical voice who run the edge of being judgmental. It's an edge now. Sometimes I have to rely on my good friends and people leaving me notes, <laughs> etc. And I take notice uh, sometimes there. So some areas, if I, I let, let's take two or three examples. Yeah. Make, may make reference to lawyers. <laughs> Bless you all. What do we say? Um, and may you live in peace. Is it uh, your good grandfather? Is it right? Uh, etc. Yeah. It wouldn't be easy for a person with a position and authority to ask oneself in that position and authority: Am I feeding the world of fear and blame? That's the only question a lawyer has to ask herself or himself. Am I cons- concerned with truth? or with victory, or with success? That's the question to ask. Tough question. The Dharma is deeply concerned with law, the laws of life. It's deeply concerned with justice. And there are some wonderful people in this area. I had uh, lunch with a very good friend, Phyllis, some of you will know, who are so committed And so working for justice, using the Dharma, using wisdom and love and kindness for accountability. And that expression of of that is vital. And we need such lawyers. They do give real support. They have a very important place in in our life. And we have to be clear with ourselves. Are we concerned with truth and justice and accountability Or are we feeding fear and blame and there's enough fear and blame in this world already? We don't need to add to it. Sometimes I might make reference to beloved psychotherapists. And though therapists are not supposed to contract, sometimes there's a little contraction in the room. Uh, Yes, understandable. And in that, the community of psychotherapists is an extraordinarily important exploration. And of course I know well enough from hundreds of conversations that much of psychotherapy isn't 
just involved in the dynamic of being a child and parenting, etc. That's one form it may be appropriate. There's many invaluable practices and traditions, and there is, and particularly at Spirit Rock, an important bridge being made between the community of psychotherapy and psychology and psychiatry and uh, nursing and healing and mind-body work and dharma and practices and reflection, inquiry and meditation. It's a very, very important and very profound bridge. And it needs, in all of, all of that, continual questioning and the therapeutic community, as with uh, ourselves, are asked. Is what I'm pointing to, either in my life or with those that I work with, genuinely liberating? The authentic psychotherapist isn't here to help people to adjust nicely to a neurotic society. You have a much more important role to play than that. It's not helping people to fit in nicely with the way things are. It's to touch very deep places and, and all of the lovely therapists who come here and who work so uh, diligently, one hopes, one trusts, that will come in the communications with, with others so that human being really feels the nobility of life. It's not just adjustment exercises. And that's a great, great challenge for uh, all of us. And similarly in the field of science and many other areas, we must be critical. We mustn't be afraid to speak up we mustn't be afraid to ste step on each other's toes. But the intention is there, because it's a, a critical voice with love in it, to bring the best out, out, out of us. And thank you all for hanging in with people like Christopher and the other Christophers around. <laughs> there are lots of them around, around here. <laughs> right, let me, a couple more, and then we'll uh, call it today. whole flow of absolutely first-class uh, questions. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> Are you a bodhisattva? We'll leave this one. <laughs> the idea of any identity, I'd rather be a Buddhist than a bodhisattva. <laughs> Can you imagine I said, if I said to him, and I said, yes, I'm a, I'm a bodhisattva. <laughs> if everyone is doing the best they can and they couldn't do otherwise, in what way are they responsible for the hurt they inflict on others? If everyone is doing the best they can and they couldn't do otherwise, in what way, way are they responsible for hurt they inflict on others? I think it's one of the major questions of our time because the political and the social and the personal immediately come to mind in our life there. In terms of where we are in the moment, the conditions arise. We heard this extraordinary... Uh, yesterday uh, afternoon with the uh, in inquiry of the, of the murderer, the rapist, and all of that. Two things are important here. One is this accountability. And that accountability means that when person or persons directly or indirectly as it were, as it were, cause harm and suffering to other people there. The person, and we as people of the earth, we as society, we as the individual, will need to hold the person accountable and responsible. It's vital. We ha and that means that when we are the person who does something foolish, wrong, naive, makes a mistake, gets caught up, whatever it might be. It is vital that we look into ourselves and take responsibility for that, whatever 
that may have been or actually is. And it's an expression of human maturity to take responsibility. Sometimes when we take responsibility, I know when people do things, whatever it may be about, and the person feels regret, the person expresses their sorrow, the person expresses her or his apology, or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. And when we listen to that, means the person has taken responsibility, perhaps their own sense of accountability has come in, perhaps someone else has held him or her accountable, and that has generated the sense of responsibility. It can go either way. This is important, this. In the, in, when somebody has expressed regret, sorrow, apology, we have to hear it very, very well and very, very sensitively and respectfully. The tendency is, for some people, whether it's a major incident, political or personal family life, or a minor, in, uh, minor incident, the tendency is to come up with the view from some people, I don't feel your apology is genuine. I don't feel your apology is good enough. I don't feel you have really expressing real regret for what you said or for what you did or what you didn't say or you didn't do or whatever it might be. And the demand of the one who wants more is a problem. It is unsatisfactory. And we have to listen. And sometimes we have the expectation on the person to bring up more emotion, to fall down, to beg forgiveness, etc. That can and sometimes does happen. I feel There is an expression of apology. Person asks for forgiveness. They regret what they did. Currently, a long time ago. The indication of the apology is the beginning of the change in the attitude. And we have to recognize the difference. And it doesn't mean to say because somebody apologizes, everything is now clear and clean, as we all know in ourselves and with others. But if the sense is the person is wishing to change, doesn't wish to repeat the behavior, whatever it, that may be, it may be for that person two steps forward, one step back. At times, two steps forward, three steps back. But to keep wanting more apology from somebody doesn't become, isn't an act of love. It's revenge. It's the wish to hurt. It's the wish to put down. It's the wish to be, to feel superior. It's the wish to humiliate. Then one wonders, what's happening in this dynamic? So once, with our Dharma practices, once something has happened in the past, one week ago, one year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, the apology has come. There, one sees that the person is committed to change, whatever that may be. No reference again to the apology. No reference to the past. It's gone. It's finished. We have to be here and now. We have to take, give our care and our love and attention to what is happening and know this person is a human being and give her or him the opportunity for change, just as you and I wish that same opportunity. And sometimes people, public life or whatever, it's not possible for a human being to keep apologizing, and keep apologizing, apologizing, but you can't do that. And then they say, oh, it looked like she didn't mean it. It looked like he didn't mean it. Lots of exploration in this area because it's to come out of fear and blame. Just to be out of fear and blame. One more question. 
and finito. This is a good use of paper, by the way. If you're gosh, there's so many of them. All right, let me just take time one for you. <clears throat> Some a little bit uh, um, uh, answered. You've mentioned, quote-unquote, the unconditioned. Isn't that a philosophical substance, backstroke, essence, that the Buddha refuted Nagarjuna to, right? Question mark. Some of you, in some of the talks over the days here, Some things will go, which have been said, will have gone straight over your heads. I know, because I can remember when they used to go over my head. Some, it will only land in the head, <laughs> etc. Yeah. Thought, philosophical idea, or whatever. Some may touch another little place uh, inside. And when certain words get used, or implied, unconditioned, the unconstructed, Liberation, enlightenment, limitless. These words for some will seem to be so far away from where one is that they, one can't relate to them. And sometimes, both in the privileged role of teaching and in the, uh, and in the role of the listening, be patient. These are not abstract ideas. It's not philosophy. It's not concerned, as a person points out, with essence and substance and, and all of that there. It's about an exploration, which as people of the earth, we're a little bit with our language in the field of the limited. Because it's words. But it may be the whisper of something which is not of the words. Sometimes we say, oh, the words are not helpful. The words hide something. The words just get us more confused. Frankly, words don't have that power. They don't have the power to confuse anything. They don't have the power to divide anything from anything. They don't have that power unless you give it to them. Words have no capacity whatsoever to reveal anything. But words have no capacity whatsoever to hide anything. Allah is merciful. Let's have a quiet minute. May all beings live with deep awareness. May all beings live with a steady heart. May all beings abide with a liberating wisdom.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.